Well, we have been looking at uh, Disciple, and this is the last uh, message in this series of Disciple. And yet it's not going to be the last message of discipleship because discipleship is a lifelong thing. Um, As I showed you last week, uh, there's a picture of a tree with its root structure being underneath the tree. And so many times the only thing that we see is the fruit and we don't realize that there are roots that cause that fruit to grow. So a tree that's nourished, a a tree that's healthy, it's receiving sunlight and soil, um, all of those things, it's being watered, they add to the fruit. And for us as Christians, this means uh, consistent spiritual disciplines. Um, I, I gain so much from listening to other Bible teachers throughout the week. I gain more from opening up my Bible and reading on my own. It's when the Holy Spirit speaks to you. It's when you, you start to open up God's word and say, God, help me to understand this. Uh, a second thing for those roots to go deep and to go strong is a uh, community and accountability and friendship. So we're not called to grow alone. Uh, God has called us to be in community with others, uh, not to forsake the gathering together of others. And and also remember this, that it's it's about holding ourselves accountable. I have some friends that um, just recently we got together for an accountability to say, this is kind of what we're all going through. And we text each other also for times of prayer. And sometimes if it just says pray with no explanation, then we kind of know, okay, there's a temptation or there's a difficulty. So we want to hold each other accountable. And then um, for those roots to go deep, we're going to look at some other things as far as um, the things that Paul wrote to Timothy that you've heard from me among many witnesses. Give these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So taking what you hear today and giving it to others. And then finally, uh, quickly confessing when we're wrong. Uh, Quickly confessing when uh, we have sin. So last week, if you remember, we looked at family relationships and um, I think it's, it's appropriate that this morning we are going to look at loving others because sometimes some of the hardest people to love are in our own families. Would, would you agree with that sometimes? Um, everyone's yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny because you're saying yes and your family members are here with you. You're, yeah, and they're saying yeah also. Um, uh, Chuck Smith said that the true test of Christianity isn't in the church but in the home. If I can't live the Christian life in the home, then I'm only a phony when I live it outside. It isn't difficult to look and act like a Christian when we come to church. I need to live the Christian life around those closest to me, those whom I rub shoulders with daily. So this morning, as we consider loving others, uh, the first text that we are going to look at is in 1 John. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible in the back of your seat, it would be helpful um, to read along. And First uh, John, Second John, Third John, those are letters written by the Apostle John all the way at the back of the Bible, just before Revelation. Uh, you have these little letters and another letter called Jude. This is different than the Gospel of John. Uh, John wrote a larger work, which is uh, the account of Jesus' life. But these are letters that John um, has written. And in First in John, in chapter 4, um, The question is, why is loving others a part of discipleship? So we're going through this series on disciple, uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ, and why is loving others such an important part of it? Well, if you read with me in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, this is what it says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, depending on how long you've been a Christian and your age, you probably started singing a song in your head. Uh, there was a, a song, Beloved, Let Us Love One Another, and then at the end it says First John 4, 7, and, 8, and you clap. And, and if you're uh, you know, a new Christian or you're seeking, you're going, that's weird. Uh, but it's a song that stuck in my head since I was a kid. And I would just sing that song not even thinking about the lyrics. But, but now when I read it in Scripture, um, I, I see that, first of all, the reason why it is important as a disciple, as a follower of Christ to love others is it's a sign that we know God. It's, it's one of the things, you know, we, we have these lists at times like what is a Christian, what isn't a Christian, what is a follower of Christ, what isn't a follower of Christ. And, and I think that sometimes we, we think of these lists with head knowledge. And yet I think it's important to realize that one of the greatest signs that we know him is that we love other people. In fact, when it comes to the word love, it's important that we understand that there are different words for love in the Greek. You know, in English, we have one word, love, and we, we say things like, um, you know, I love the 49ers. You know, I love my wife. I, I love uh, double doubles. I love, you know, these different things. They're all different. Every aspect of those is different. And yet we have this one word that we use in so many different contexts that I think it's an overused word. So that when someone says to you, I love you, you got to be careful because what does that mean to them? Because that word has a lot of different connotations. Uh, one of the Greek words, um, eron, which is not in the New Testament, but it is a word that was used in classical Greek, um, is a word that is a self-centered type of love. Uh, it's where we get the word eros, which is in uh, the Bible. But, but it's a, a love that says, I love how you make me feel. Um, usually it's a, a love that, that is uh, between um, a man and a woman, but it could also be used for objects. So you could say, I love my iPad, but as soon as this breaks, the love is gone, right? I don't, I don't love this if it's broken. And so that's the kind of love that the world has. I love you because you make me feel good, but as soon as you stop performing, as soon as you stop making me feel good, as soon as it's hard to love you, what do people say? I'm not in love with you anymore. Because they're using a, a particular type of love, which, which we could look at as a, a word, Iran. There's another love that is an unconditional love that the New Testament talks about. And it's a love that, that totally gave meaning when, when uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13. This kind of love is an agape love. It's a love of sacrifice. It's a love of choice. It's what Jesus said when he said, greater love has no one than this, than what? then he lays down his life for his friend. So if you really love someone, that means you lay down your life for them. You not just die, but, but live in a way that you deny self. That kind of love is a sacrificial love. And that kind of love always, always costs the giver. Let me repeat that. That kind of love always costs the giver because it's sacrificial in essence. Um, a love with a friend that 
that uh, you don't get in arguments, you like all the same things, and you say, hey, we're just great friends, we love each other. But maybe it's because you like all the same things and you don't argue and you have this understanding. But when that person does something that hurts you or when that person goes against you, now you have a decision to make, do I really love them? And so um, love is really a sign that we know God. As it says, uh, verse seven, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Um, Love is also important because the gospel is a message of love. Notice that it says this in verse 9. In this is the love in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This is the message of Christmas that that Christ came into the world that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. And the gospel is really a gospel not of head knowledge but a gospel of of faith that we have to believe it. It's a trust in the Lord, but it's also responding to God's love. You know, when it comes to God's love, I think that, that too many times people outside of the church, they could either take Jesus full of grace, but they deny truth, or they could see Jesus as just full of truth without, without grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so it's absolutely essential that we understand and we, we, when we share with people the gospel, it's a message of love. And then it's important because God loved us first. Read with me in verse 10. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So who loved first, us or God? It was God that loved us first. In fact, it's his love that draws us. And the reason why we love God is not to earn God's approval. It's to love him back because we're responding to his love. And then we also um, are to love others because we should love because God loved us. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I do want to point out two more verses that really will bring this home because sometimes people can say, I love God. I just hate people. Um, I, I love God, I just, I just don't like people. If you read with me in verses 20 and 21, same chapter, verse 20 and 21, it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So we can't say, I love God, and yet I, I hate my brother. Because if we do that, then, then we're lying. Because if you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and the second one is like it. It's linked to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if I want to show God that I love him, part of how I show God that I love him is by loving people that are hard to love and by loving others. So this morning, I want to focus on people that are difficult for us to love when it comes to loving others. This is a, a, a famous painting. I went on a missions trip uh, right around 2000, right around the year 2000 probably, maybe 1999, 
Um, and actually, uh, I was the principal of a school in San Jose. Ashley Johnston was a, a part of that junior high. And so I took her and some other junior hires uh, with me. We went to Russia on a missions trip. And uh, when we went on that trip, uh, part of what we did is we went to St. Petersburg. There was a Calvary Chapel that was planted in St. Petersburg, and we went uh, to help them out with some things. And we took a, an excursion to a museum called the Hermitage, just a, an absolutely beautiful museum. Out of all of the paintings in the whole museum, this is the one that struck me. Because the tour guide was explaining um, the painting. And, and of course, for us as believers you know, that know the Bible, immediately when uh, you know, the tour guide took us to this part, we realized that it was the picture of the return of the prodigal son. Um, Jesus told this story that we are going to look at this morning that is uh, one of the most famous stories in all of the world. And it's a story of these two brothers, one brother who is younger and rebellious and he leaves home and he wastes everything and uh, he goes and he wastes his money with, with prostitutes and partying and one brother is faithful and he stays home with his dad and when the younger brother comes home, the father runs to him and he greets him. And in this painting, um, I, I think that even though Rembrandt, um, you know, he didn't necessarily make it uh, biblically accurate all the way through, but I think the spirit of it is there because I really believe that when you look at this painting in the background um, or possibly on the right, I think that one of these guys is probably the older brother that is looking on. Now, we know in Luke 15, which we're going to read, that the older brother doesn't see the younger brother coming home. He hears a party going on. And so when we consider this this morning, what kind of people are hard for you to love? I just want you to think about that for a second. Because there's certain people for all of us that it's kind of like our Achilles heel. Those are the people that are really, really difficult to love. Uh, for some of you, it, it may be people that, um, people that are lazy. Just, I, I hate lazy people. Maybe you say that, I just, I hate lazy people. Um, arrogant people. Oh, I just hate arrogant people. You know, they're so proud. They're so arrogant uh, people that give self-pity. Oh, those self-pity people. You know, there's, there's always a genre of people that are hard for us to love. Maybe in particular, it could be a specific person. But I really think that this morning, when we look at Luke 15, I wanna let you know ahead of time, you might be offended by this next section of scripture that we look at. And in fact, I, I think that some of us um, will, will get a, our feathers ruffled a little bit. The important thing is to have our hearts open, to say, God, if there's some truth in here that you want me to hold on to, then help me to grasp that. Because probably, and I'm just, I don't know, but I think some of the people that might get their feathers ruffled or be offended the most might be some of the most moral people that are sitting here in this room today. Might be some of the most religious people that are in this room today. In Luke chapter 15. Again, I don't want to offend anyone needlessly, but at times the gospel is offensive. Um, it says this, and, and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're, we're going to read just um, a couple of verses to open up, and then we're going to look specifically at the last parable that Jesus tells. Luke chapter 15, it says, Tax collectors and other sinners often came to listen to Jesus 
teach. They, they drew near to hear him. So tax collectors and, and sinners. I think it's ironic that it says tax collectors and sinners because who, who are sinners? All of us, right? So what, what, is, what is Luke writing about? What specific type of sinners? These are like notorious sinners. Uh, these are, are sinners that... These are sinners that hang out at, at a certain place that you know that place is filled with sinners. Uh, my friend uh, Jeff Rickle, uh, he, he's a police officer in San Jose. Uh, for one p- period of time, his shift was Friday and Saturday nights. It was the night shift down in downtown San Jose where all the bars and nightclubs. And so uh, I went on a ride along with him one time and he just talked about that area. Um, and, and that area, there were always drunk people, there were always fights, uh, there were always, uh, there's prostitution, there was, like, there's always something going on in that area. And this is the notorious, in a sense, sin that we look at. Now remember this, we're all sinners. And remember this, that, that all sin separates us from God. But we categorize in our minds sin. And usually the way that we categorize the worst sinners are people that sin differently than us. Those are the worst. And so we, we have these categories. Now, these um, tax collectors, remember that tax collectors were a despised group of people, not just because they received and collected the taxes, but their fee was to take skim off of the top whatever they wanted. And the Roman government said, instead of us taxing the people and going out, uh, we're going to hire your own people. So these were Jewish people. And they would go out and they would tax other Jewish people. And so the tax collectors, they didn't have a lot of friends. And because they didn't have a lot of friends, they probably grouped together. I, I think sometimes in our culture today, people that are in rebellion towards God or in a sin that is a, a sin that our society and our culture realizes is a big sin, they tend to group together. You notice that? And, and they group together because there's a comfort in grouping with other people that sin like you do because you don't feel conviction. In fact, when, when we're in rebellion towards God and we're having a hard time uh, with God and we're in sin, whatever that sin is, the last place you want to be is here. One of the biggest struggles in, in church is that condemnation of guilt that says, I can't go to that place because all those people have their act all together. All those people, they're, they're good people. And, it, you know, they're families. You know, they all, they all are, are good families. My family, no, we're, we're different. And if you feel that way, then I'm, I'm, I'm super glad that you're here because this message is specifically for you as well. It says that um, they, they drew near to Jesus. And, you know, I asked the question, why is it that Jesus attracted these people and yet the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious people, they repelled these kind of people. Jesus drew these kind of people and the Pharisees repelled these kind of people. They drew near to Jesus, I believe, not because Jesus compromised his message in any way. His message wasn't light and fluffy. If you read the Gospels, Read, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, all the words in red are the words that were spoken by Jesus. They were hard words. They weren't fluffy. 
They weren't, um, you could be the champion today uh, words. They weren't, uh, this is, you know, you could have a a life of prosperity and and wealth. The words were, if you really want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily. You have to deny yourself. The words were, uh, let the dead bury the dead, come and follow me. The words were, unless you hate your own mother or father in comparison to me, how much your love is for me, you can't be my disciple. His words were very hard words. But why did notorious sinners and tax collectors draw near to him if his word was so hard? Just want you to think about that. Today, when it comes to the the marketing of church growth, um, my my wife Deanna used to work when we were in college uh, for a, a company part time, and it was in the you know the the 1990s and so this was at the fort this was brand new but it was this new company it was a nonprofit called church growth and it was all about marketing and i'm not against reaching out to people and being creative and looking for ways to do that but but some of the ways sometimes that they would uh portray as reaching out to people would be you don't want any you don't want any of these in your church because it's offensive to people so you don't want those things. And there's certain words that you don't, you don't talk about blood, the blood of Christ. You know, that's, that's something that you don't, you know, it, it's almost like the sneak attack. Let, get them in and get them, you know, happy. And then in their small group, then you could tell them that there's blood involved in this and there's a, a cross and all of these things. And that's kind of like sometimes the technique behind those things. Jesus never compromised his message. In fact, it was deep and it was meaningful and it was very convicting. And I think that people saw that it was real. It's really deep. It's very convicting. And I think that they saw that what he's saying was true and it brings meaning to life. Um, They didn't draw near because he didn't tell them hard things. And I also believe this. They drew near because he knew that that he cared about them. The reason why they kept coming, they knew that he loved them. They knew that he cared about them. How How did they know that? He probably told them. But he also spent time with them, didn't he? He ate with them. He went to their homes. He invited them in. He didn't care what other religious people would think about him if he went and spent time with them at their place. So he probably went into some of those places that these notorious sinners gathered together. And just by going in, and then in, in the Middle Eastern culture, to eat with someone, to share a meal, that's assimilating the same life-giving nutrients into your body. It, it's, it's a very intimate thing. And so by Jesus eating with them, it, it, really, um, it really got the Pharisees kind of angry and upset. And for me, it's a really convicting thing to think about because as the body of Christ, we're to represent him. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, wrote this. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even in our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people the licentious and liberated or broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect 
on the people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. One of the most convicting sentences I've read in a book. To think about if they drew near to Jesus, there was something about how he responded to them and his message and his personality when he was with them that drew them. And, and at times, I think that we could be well-intentioned, but we need to be very careful because if we don't reach out to people where they are and we give a message unintentionally that they have to get their lives cleaned up before they come, they'll never come. The message must be that God loves them as they are responding to God's message and the cleaning up of the life and the living according to God's rules is a response to God's love and his grace. It's not to earn God's love and earn God's grace. In verse two, it says, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating, I'm reading out of the NLT right here, complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. When Jesus reaches out to us, he lived out what he said, that the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I think sometimes our attitude is we come to receive those who are lost. Jesus went to seek and to save those who are lost, which means there's some active involvement in the seeking of those people. Whom do you eat with? Um, Do we isolate ourselves from people that don't know Christ? Do we try to insulate ourselves and create this bubble in this perfect environment in which we don't let sinners come in because that would kind of corrupt our, our children? So we would never invite them to our house or we don't go into their places lest somehow we would be infected by their sin. And we have to be very careful that we might not say those words, but sometimes those are our actions. And sometimes those are deep things within our hearts of self-righteousness that that really when Jesus begins to tell these parables, I want you to notice that verses one and two is the key for this parable that he's about to tell. So we look at the prodigal and we think that this is um, the main thing is reaching out to the rebellious. The main key in Luke chapter 15 is that Jesus is speaking to religious people who are judging non-religious people or rebellious people. Jesus goes on to tell in verses three through seven. um, I I want you to notice that verse three says, he spoke, what parable? This parable to them. And I want you to see that he's going to speak one parable in three different stories. It's all one parable. There's all one key. The first one is the lost sheep in verses three through seven. And I'm just gonna summarize it with this sentence that, there were 99 sheep that were saved and one that was lost and the shepherd went to go after the one. So he explains that. So Jesus said, hey, 99 sheep, how many of you, if one was lost, wouldn't go after that sheep and rejoice when you find that sheep? In verses eight through 10, um, he goes on in the same parable to talk about the lost coin. There's a, a woman that has nine coins and loses one. She sweeps the floor, she looks for it. And when she finds the one, she rejoices. And in fact, I want you to read verse 10 because it's the key. It says, likewise, I say to you, there is what? Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy in that. And again, it's in contrast to the Pharisees who are not joyful 
over sinners that were able to come. And then in verse 11, the lost sons. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons with an S. This is plural to me. It says in verse 11, um, then he said, a certain man had two sons. Now, when it comes to these two sons, um, I want to ask you a question about your background. And, and you don't have to really raise your hand right now. I just, just think about it in your head, okay? We're just, we're just, this is a rhetorical question. How many of you, um, if you're married, before you were married, just slept around? And then how many of you waited until you were married to have sex? How many of you um, dress a certain way because it feels good to be rebellious? How many of you dress a certain way because you don't want to seem like you're weird? Um, How many of you have a rough background, no church at all? And how many of you were raised in the church, maybe even a legalistic church? How many of you use drugs, got drunk, experimented with drugs? How many of you um, have been sober your whole life when it comes to foreign substances? How many of you feel like you don't belong here at church because you aren't good enough? And how many of you feel like someone else doesn't belong here at church because they aren't good enough? See, those slight attitudes in our background many times will affect the way that we think and the way that we see other people. The theme of this is loving others. But before we do that, I think it's important to, to get to this foundation of why is it that some people are harder to love for us than, than others. So when we look at the prodigal sons, the lost sons, um, the first one is the rebellious. Read with me in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. So the father, let me explain what's happening in this Middle Eastern culture. The oldest son would get the lion's share of the inheritance, half of the inheritance. The other half would be split by the remaining siblings. So if there were four in a family and the oldest is a boy, the oldest son would get half and in many ways would probably try to continue the father's business And the other three siblings, the second half would be divided into thirds. In this parable, there are two sons. So the older son is going to get a larger portion because there's only two. But the younger son said to his father, give me my portion that falls to me. And and I want you to notice that he's asking for it now. The portion would be given when? Upon the father's death. That's when the inheritance would be given. This would be like two boys in a family in which a father owns a business. And imagine the younger of the boys saying, Dad, I know that you're going to give the business to me and to my brother. You're going to split it between us. You're going to write, you know, this. But I want my portion now. And I want out. And, and in many ways, it was an, not only an insult to a father, it was almost like saying, Dad, if, if you were dead right now, it would be better. Because then I don't have to go through this relationship. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what his brother was like for him, but, but just the younger brother, he, he wants out. 
And it says in verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and he journeyed to a far country and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He just wasted his possessions. And the words there for livelihood and possessions, I want you to consider that um, he's really wasting his life. The word prodigal is uh, extravagantly um, reckless is what it means, extravagantly reckless. He was extravagantly reckless when he took this money and all of his possessions and he did whatever he wanted to do. And then I want you to notice in verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. Jesus is offending a lot of people in this story because Jesus is Jewish and the Pharisees and the scribes are Jewish. And according to their law, pork, pigs, swine were off limits. And and this younger brother goes into a, a, a field of work in which he's actually feeding the swine. So he's breaking all of these religious laws. And as he does this, It says that in verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. He was so desperate. I don't know if you've ever been at rock bottom, but this is rock bottom bottom. This is is a friend of mine named Joe uh, Salias that is a pastor now, but got to a point when he had received Christ as a high school student and afterwards got involved with drugs again and he knew that he was living wrong and he got so involved that as he was taking pills, he he was sick and he vomited them up and was picking them out of the vomit to try to take them again. Now, I wanna give you that graphic depiction because we look at it in the physical realm as very sick, but that's how God sees sin, all sin. In in the book of Proverbs, it says, like a dog going back to his own vomit. That's what it's like when we go back to those things that we know that are wrong. And this is what this, this, this young prodigal son is doing. He would rather eat the stuff that the pigs were eating, the pig slop. And then he starts to think, it says in verse 17, when he came to himself, um, he, he thought about it. He came to his senses and it says, he said, and, and notice he's saying this out loud. So first of all, it's in his head. And then I think that it's in his heart. And then he begins to rehearse, what am I going to say to dad when I get back? Have you ever rehearsed something like this? When you've messed up and you've hurt someone, maybe it's a a spouse, maybe it's a mother or a father, maybe it's a a good friend and you have messed up and you're rehearsing in your mind how you are going to approach them when you see them. What is it that you're going to say? And it said, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and notice the will being involved. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I want you to notice that when we sin against someone else, it's also sinning against heaven. He saw this as a sin against heaven and then also to his father. And he said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Earlier in his speech to his dad, he said, give me. 
Give me, give me what I want. Give it to me right now. I demand it. There was this sense of entitlement. And now he's saying, make me a servant. Just make me a servant, whatever you want to do. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then in verse 20, it says he arose. And now, so it's not enough just to have it in your mind and in your heart. There has to be action behind it. Repentance is not just feeling really badly for what you've done wrong. Repentance means that you do something and you get up and you go back and try to make amends and do what's right. You try to repair that relationship. You try to go back and pay back someone you ripped off. You go back and you tell someone, I am sorry for having hurt you. What I did was wrong. And he not only has rehearsed this, but then now he does it. And it says when he arose and he came to his father in verse 20, while he was still a great way off, his father, his father saw him and had compassion and he ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. This parable that Jesus tells for me never, ever, ever gets old. Because if you picture it in your mind, you know that the father in this parable is God the father, represented by the father here. And I just think, you know, I'm a director in my mind. I see movie scenes many times as I'm reading something. And I just see a dad out in a field and there is a sunset and there's a, like a wheat field. And over the hill, I just see his son walking and it's kind of like the, you know, in the sun, you know, it's kind of like wavy because of the heat. But the dad knows it's, it's his son because of his posture and the way that he walks, the way that when you love someone, you know the way they walk, you know their mannerisms. And I think that every time the dad goes out to work the field, he looks up and he's just praying for his son. I I think that every time he looks at the field, he's like, where's my son? You know, I just want to pray right now as as we finish this um, through. Some of you have prodigals in your life. You love your prodigals. You love your sons. You love your daughter. You love your, your husband, your wife, your friend. They're not with the Lord right now, and you know that their life is miserable. And you know that maybe they haven't hit bottom yet. But you know what? God loves them. And in this parable, one of the things that we see is that the father never gives up, never gives up hope. So I just, I just want to pray. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you are like this prodigal right now. So Lord, this morning, as we continue through the, your word, I just want to pray for any parent, any spouse, any friend, any son or daughter that knows a prodigal. Lord, for some, it is, uh, it's a parent that isn't walking with you. And that is very painful. For some, Lord, it could be a spouse, it could be a a friend. But Lord, I pray this morning that you would bring comfort, that you would bring hope. Lord, bring them back, bring them to you. Help them to know that you are a God who loves them and uh, anticipate them coming. And we, uh, we pray this by faith in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I also want to say that um, Benny Hester used to uh, sing a song called The Only Time I Ever Saw God Run is When He Ran to Me. And so there's a running that happens as he sees his son coming. The father is not waiting with his arms crossed. The father is not waiting like this and waiting for the son to repent. Um, Remember that with Absalom, remember David's son Absalom and David's heart was broken for his son Absalom. The Jewish people, when, when, when Jesus was telling this parable, they understood this. They understood a father's heart being broken for his son because all throughout scripture, 
There are many fathers whose hearts are broken for their children. Many times it's with a father and a son in that relationship. But the thing about David is when he allowed Absalom to come back, he didn't ever go see Absalom. He just let him have a room. You could have a room and you could stay there. And maybe he was waiting for Absalom to change. Maybe he was waiting for a turn in Absalom's life and then he would show him love. The father in this parable runs to the son that is coming and he runs to him. And I just, you know, that scene, the son has rehearsed in his mind what I'm gonna say, how I'm gonna say it. Dad, I'm sorry, please let me. And he doesn't get a chance to finish because before he finishes, the father is upon him and he hugs him. And then the father, he, he runs to him. And as the son is rehearsing this speech, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Get a ring and put it on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this son, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. And it's one of the greatest stories in all of the world that the father is rejoicing. We, we need to celebrate this right now. We don't have time. I, I don't, don't even finish your speech right now because we need to throw a party. And you see the father being representative of God, uh, a representative of God the father. While the son was still a great way off, his father saw him. And you know, you don't have to go to a far country to be a prodigal. Some of you have been maybe a prodigal for la- the last month. November was a bad month. Maybe for 2013, you've been a prodigal. Maybe you're a prodigal several times throughout your day and you just go to that far off land. You just go into the fantasy life that is not reality. And even though you don't physically go there and do those things, you're just, your heart can be taken far away from God, doing the things that you wanna do and saying, if only I could get away with this, if only I could do this. This is a, a picture of the father's love for us also because some of us aren't like the rebellious son. We're like the self-righteous older brother. It says in verse 25, now his older brother was in the field, older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He's like this uh, loud music going on. What, what in the world is going on? You know, there's a subwoofer. Boom, boom, boom. He's like, what's happening? He gets over to the room and, and there's dancing. He's going, what? there's dancing, what? there's a party. And he called one of the, hey, what's going on? What do these things mean? In verse 27, He said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. He got a pig, you know, not not a pig, you know, in the Filipino culture, this would have been a pig with an apple in its mouth and it would have been buried and cooked and it would have been this incredible feast. But for them, you know, they're Jewish, it's a fatted calf. It's this uh, Kobe beef, you know, and and it's been well fed. and, uh, And it says in verse 28, the older brother, notice his response. What is it? He's angry. He is angry and he would not go in. He's not gonna party with them. He's not going to have a good time celebrating this punk younger brother that wasted everything and the work fell upon me and I've been good and I've been trying to follow my dad's rules. And he answered and he said to his father in verse 29, look, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You give him a fatty cat. You don't even give me a goat. In verse 30, but as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
I believe that there are many older brothers and sisters like this in the church today. Up to this point, the Pharisees were mad at Jesus for eating with the the sinners and the tax collectors. And I think in the parable of the lost coins, uh, the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, they, they began to get, okay, I see why you're eating with these people. But now I think that they're starting to get a little bit offended because I think he's talking to them directly. And as they listen to him, Jesus in effect is saying, what about you? Now, before we judge this older brother, let's look at what he must have had to have gone through. His brother's decision, the older brother was left to do the work in the field. The older brother was obedient. Um, but notice that the older brother didn't have to travel to a far off place. See, both brothers in this parable, both brothers are guilty of not loving their father unconditionally. Both brothers are guilty of using their father to get to, you know, he's the means to their ends. Sometimes we think of God that way. I'm good. I go to church. I tithe. I even give a little bit extra to Advent Conspiracy. You know, I served at the tea. I did all of these things. Um, I'm passing out flyers. And, and, and I asked you, to help me to get this job and I didn't get it. And now I'm angry because this punk, this other person is saying, oh, praise God, God gave me this job. And I know that he didn't serve at the T and didn't give towards Advent Conspiracy and didn't you know, do all these things. And we can get angry at God and see God as the genie that gets us what we want because we're good Christians doing the right moral things, avoiding the notorious sins. And we can get bitter And I don't want to be bitter. I want to be joyful. The joy of the Lord is our strength. This younger, I mean, the older brother was furious. And in verse 31, he said to him, this is the father saying to the son, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Notice it was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother. And notice what does the son, the older son call his brother? Your son. You know that, that there's a problem when, you know, like a husband and wife get in an argument about one of the kids and they'll say, you know what your daughter did the other day, you know, and, and here's the older brother saying, your son, and the father saying, no, he's your brother. I want you to remember, he's your brother. He says, your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Son, you're with me. All I have is yours. But this prison of bitterness had really enslaved that hardworking son. Sometimes we could be faithful and no one notices. And there are few joys in life. I think that that if we can't celebrate someone that doesn't know God coming to God or repenting, then there's a big problem. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, once said that the church has nothing to do but to save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. And as I close this morning, which brother are you? Are you the younger brother? Because the younger brother was rebellious. Younger brother was unrighteous. The younger brother was very experimental, going outside of the bounds and the limits, pushing the limits, very loose. Or are you the elder brother? The elder brother was very compliant, traditional, staying within the limits, legalistic, but was also very self-righteous. Both were lost. One was lost at home, the other one was lost away. And you know, one of the worst things that can happen is for 
Christian kids to grow up in a Christian home obeying all the rules, but their heart not being engaged in the relationship of worship of Jesus. That would be one of the worst things for us as adults to do as well. So the father had a love for both. And in the father's love for both, I think that sometimes, sometimes there are certain people that are hard for us to love. For some of you, the people that are hard to love are the rebellious, really hard to love. The person that looks rebellious, you know, the gauges and, and the, the tats and, you know, a biker or, a, you know, someone that's out there just kind of living alternative lifestyle. Those are hard people for you to love for some of you. I, I want to share it for me. It's the older brothers that are hard to love. I really struggle with self-righteousness. And I think the reason why I struggle with self-righteousness is because I'm an older brother. Not older in my family. I'm the youngest in my family. But if I try to tend towards one of the two, I'm towards the older brother. You know, when Deanna and I got married, that was the first time that, that we had both had sex because we decided that we were gonna wait and show this sacrificial love on purpose. We decided that ahead of time. I've never been drunk. I have taken three sips of alcohol my whole life. Um, by God's grace, I became a Christian at a young age. And being moral and growing up and wanting to do the right things for the right reasons after I became a Christian, things can seep in over time when I could begin to um, not like the self-righteous people and, and feel like, man, who are you to be a judge over these people and not reach out to them? You know, why are you so judgmental? And I can be judgmental of the judgmental people. Do you see that? Some of us are like the older brother in that way. And we need to realize that God in his love for both didn't rebuke the older brother. You know what he did? He loved the older brother. He said, son, all that I have is yours. You could have all this joy also if you would just receive it. And I really pray this morning, the bottom line, we love God because he first loved us. And if we are born of God, then loving others is a family trait. How I want to reflect the love of our father. Don't you? Wouldn't that be a message to the world when they see that kind of love? Even to the self-righteous. Because to the self-righteous, they need to be confronted in their self-righteousness, but know that you love them anyway. Jesus loved them. He confronted them with truth. He was always committed to them. He was always faithful, always gracious, but he never compromised. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much for the incredible, incredible story of the love of a father for two sons. And Lord, for both of those sons, their lostness was seen differently. Lord, for one, it was rebellion, licentious living. For others, it was legalism and self-righteousness. And God, we don't want to be either. We, we want to reflect Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. So God, I pray that you would help us, especially as Christmas draws near. And Lord, it's a time that maybe, maybe some of those people out there that feel like they are too far gone, maybe they'll listen during this season. Lord, I also want to pray for those that are here this morning. We've prayed for prodigals, but Lord, there may be some prodigals that are here. And God, they need to they needed to have been here to hear the message that you love them. And that, Lord, when they've gone a thousand steps away, it's one step back. So I pray this morning, if there are any of you that uh, you are far from God, whether you are 
a self-righteous person that has been in church, legalism, or, or just kind of a bitterness that seems like mad at the world, or if you're like the younger brother that has been going your own way, maybe, maybe not in a far country, but just in your heart and in your thoughts. To all of us, Jesus would bid us to come back. And to those that have never received Christ, he would bid you to come and become a son, become a daughter. So I'm gonna pray two prayers. And the first one is an invitation for anyone here that has never received Christ, that where you are, you would open up your heart by faith to trust him for this. And that you would pray this prayer with me. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Accept me and receive me as I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Please fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. And in this journey of faith, I don't even know all of what that means. I just know that it's real. And I know that I want you. And I know that I need you to take control of my life. Father, for those of us that are maybe more like the elder brother or the younger brother, and we've known you, but Lord, we, we slip into either self-righteousness or into rebellion. Lord, uh, for, for many of us, we're hybrids. I'm a hybrid, Lord. Um, at times self-righteous, at times rebellious. So God, we pray for your forgiveness. And we ask that as we worship you, that your Holy Spirit would do that work in our hearts that we so desperately need. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to continue to worship. And as we worship the Lord, if uh, you would desire prayer, I just, I I so much hope and long for us to be a church where uh, a culture of prayer is something where we're open with one another. Um, Just to my right, uh, to your left, We'll have some people there to pray with you. You know, asking someone for prayer is not a, a thing of like, I'm a really bad person. Maybe it's a, you're a really good person and uh, you need, you need uh, some grace. Maybe it's that you're, you're going through something, you have a prodigal in your life. Maybe you prayed to receive Christ. We wanna pray with you. And so uh, we're gonna worship the Lord and let's just take this time to individually um, just open up your heart to the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to minister.